Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so here we are 24 hours later. <clears throat> you made it so far. <clears throat> and uh, I first want to acknowledge that, especially if you haven't done this before, that the, the first day of a retreat is often kind of challenging. <clears throat> you can take a little uh, weather report. How many people were sleepy today? Hmm, got some company. Uh-huh. How many people were restless or had moments of restlessness and just feeling like, oh, I've got to get out of my skin? Yeah, okay. How about uh, aches in the body? Okay. And um, busy mind? Okay, you're all doing great. Right on schedule. And uh, one of the things about having done this process before, for those who've done it, some people have done it many times, and they're not, they're ma- not masochists. Um, there's a, an understanding that the beginning of a retreat is a, a settling in period. And so those experiences of sleepiness, restlessness, aches in the body, busy, busy, busy mind are a natural um, part of this unfolding. And it's good to see that you're not alone. This is not just you. This is what most of us go through. It's a bit, I think of it as a, a bit of a, like a detox experience. I mentioned this in one of the groups. You know, if you're, um, if you've ever done any fasting or detoxing, when you start, um, you feel kind of little grumpy, out of sorts as the, the, the toxins are coming out and uh, food looks really good and oh, there's ice cream and there's pizza and I, I can't have any. Or, um, but after a while, when you, when you clean out, if you've given yourself a chance to do that, uh, there's a lightness, a clarity, um, avocado can taste just exquisite, and uh, ice cream and pizza might be a bit too intense at times. Well, your fasting or detoxing from stimulation, from probably an intensely um, um, busy life for most people, or a barrage of responsibilities and things to do, your to-do list. Uh, And here, there's none of that. What's your to-do list? Oh, uh, walk. (laughs) Oh, sit. (laughs) Oh, eat. Okay. Oh, work meditation. That's pretty much it. And And an occasional talk, a little entertainment here and there. And it takes some getting used to not doing all of that stuff and just learning to be. And so it's natural if there's some 
grumpiness, some resistance. Here you, you're told, okay, now sit still for 45 minutes. Now walk in a very attentive way. Now um, go to a room that you're, you've never been in before, maybe with a roommate on top of it all. Now pay attention, and what you're paying attention to is an ache in your body or uh, a, a, a busy mind or seeing how sleepy you are. So there's often, not always, um, some resistance and some um, challenging moments these first couple of days. And that's, and I know actually in, in the groups, a few people said, it's so great being here. It's so great, nothing to do, and I can, I can just um, savor the stillness and or the calm or whatever. So I, I don't want to paint a, a, an utterly gloomy picture, uh, but if you do go through those challenges, and I saw all those hands, um, it's okay. You're doing fine. It takes really about two or three days for most people to really land. I've been teaching these retreats for many years and I've never figured out how to start a retreat on the fourth day. You know? <laughs> but what this first period is, as Jane was sharing the, this afternoon and what we're talking about, um, is a lot of compassion and patience with the process. That's why I uh, wanted to introduce that, that self-compassion uh, this afternoon, early on in the retreat. Because really, kindness is the foundation for a clear mind. When I sit, and I often share this in, uh, in instructions, the basic attitudes that I bring to my own practice, noticing as best I can what's here, letting it be how it is, unless it's too much and it needs some adjustment, but for the most part, seeing if I can let it be how it is and opening to it with a relaxed, that is a non-struggling, striving, a relaxed, interested, which is simply just being curious about what's here, relaxed, interested, and kind awareness. If you can remember that, everything else will follow. It does take some intention to be here, you know, it, it's not so relaxed that you say, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. You know, it's okay. I'm just chill. It takes some um, willingness to be here. That's where the interest comes in because it's much easier to pay attention if you somehow can get in touch with your natural curiosity. Um, but it's got to be in that spirit of kindness. There's just a little thing about interest that I often share on, on retreats. Uh, my model, my um, um, 
archetype of interest uh, is uh, in a birthday card. Some of you might have heard me say this, that I, I've never sent because I, I just love it so much. And uh, it's, a, it's a baby, um, infant really, uh, who's just uh, pulled a bugger from his nose, completely mesmerized. <laughs> mm. And you open it up and it says, you always were easy to entertain. Happy birthday. Mm. I go for boogerhood, actually. <laughs> Just a sense of wonder that you come into this world with. But you can't be striving. It's not like, oh, I'm going to make something happen. It's just, oh, this is a moment of my life. Can I be here for it? And can I be here for it in a relaxed way, an easy, open, receptive way, and a kind attitude? <clears throat> so it's really called for at this beginning because it's hard to settle in. This stuff is hard. And I know... You signed up for an Awakening Joy retreat, and you might be wondering, okay, so where's the joy? Let's get on with it. Uh, but you can't just say, okay, let's put on a smile and, and let's be happy. The first noble truth in the Buddha's teachings is there's suffering in life. There's no getting around that. And the Buddha said, the more you can understand and come to terms with the inevitable suffering and sorrow and pain and loss and all the things that are part of being human, the more you can not be afraid of it and integrate it, the more you can come to the end of suffering. So, and we'll be bringing this up as the retreat goes on because this is part of the experience. Um, in a very kind of paradoxical way, uh, as we can um, allow ourselves to open up to the challenges, we find a confidence and a strength and a fearlessness that we didn't know we had. That's how we, often how we grow. And there's one teaching that I, I love of, of the Buddhas. Uh, it's called... Um, Transcendental Dependent Arising. That's, you can Google those words, and there's a beautiful essay by Bhikkhu Bodhi, where in this list, the Buddha starts out with, um, suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy. Joy can lead to happiness and contentment and peace all the way to the highest stages of happiness. Because suffering can wake us up. L let me ask, how many people here have been motivated by suffering in your life to look for deeper answers and a spiritual journey? See, look around. That's how it works. So we're not trying to avoid suffering, but to learn how to, uh, to skillfully deal with it when it comes. We're not looking for it, of course, but to learn how to uh, open to it. This is a 
Khalil Gibran who says, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Now don't go looking to carve a whole lot of sorrow in. It will find you in its own time. But just know that that's, um, it, it deepens your compassion and your connection with, with the human experience. And to be willing to not only tolerate it, but, um, but see it as, um, as a gateway to a deepening inner core of strength uh, really shifts the whole relationship you have with the challenges that you meet. There's another poem I love by Jennifer Wellwood called Unconditional. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight. To honor its form, true devotion. Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. So uh, I, I start, want to start to talk with this reality check as we go into this awakening joy stuff, which I will also talk about tonight. And I wanted to also address something that came up at, uh, in, in the uh, discussion this afternoon, uh, which is a really important point, lest this kind of trap you as we, as we do this, um, um, this approach. It was brought up about all the the sorrow and the pain in the world and the ignorance and the inhumanity that humans do to each other and to this planet. And so sometimes people feel a, a bit guilty. Can I really let myself experience joy when there's so much sorrow, when the planet is in so much danger? And from where I am seeing, your despair and your um, uh, discouragement and your any sense of hopelessness, which are all natural, understandable responses, but if you are coming from that place, you don't add 
to the possibilities of bringing out the best in humanity. And I wanted to read to you a, a, a um, passage that I, I put in uh, my book from Howard Zinn, who, uh, as many of you might know, wrote The People's History of the United States, the unwhitewashed history saying it like it really is, the good, the bad, the ugly. He also happened to be um, John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law, for those who are familiar with MBSR, but was a very uh, profound thinker in his, own, in his own right. And this is what he says. An optimist is ne- isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, This gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So if your heart breaks and gets very frustrated and outraged and you don't know what to do with that, as I said earlier today, go underneath the outrage, process that, honor that, respect that, but realize that it's coming from a place of deep caring. That's why it hurts. And if you can get in touch with that caring, you can help awaken that in others who also really care. And lo and behold, as difficult as things seem to get at times, there is a caring and a connection and a a sense of holding hands together in a way that, uh, at least in these days, I haven't seen uh, for many decades. So you just don't know. But you, what you can bring in connecting with your own goodness and love and clarity and wisdom is a way to um, help awaken that in everybody else. So um, just want to first address that as a, a context for the things that I I want to share uh, as we go on because I do want to share with you some of the other principles of awakening joy. As I said uh, last night, um, there are there are three principles that that uh, I found really inspiring by the of the Buddhist teachings. Um, one, seeing where happiness truly lies 
in wholesome states, not in things, not in, uh, in objects, but that it's right inside of us. <clears throat> in fact, I'll, maybe I'll get this out if I, if I do have it. Just to show you what we're dealing with, this is not news to you, but it, it will drive the point home. This is a, um, an ad called The Gold Shivers. Mm. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy, saying, The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. This is the uh, two-page ad. You can see her while I read. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye <laughs> to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. It's brilliant, isn't it? That's it. I'm out of here. You, you, you might not even care about jewelry, but you look at that and you say, gee, I'd like some of that too. You know? <laughs> or you might say, I'm from the Bay Area, or where you ha ever happen to be from. I'm a critical thinker. I don't buy that stuff, or I don't buy too much of it, but, uh, <laughs> but I don't buy that line. But the thing is, it works. It gets in there. That's how our minds are shaped. And as you probably have seen, the human mind is very shapeable and very malleable. You say, nah, that, I don't buy that. Look at all the, the beautiful people, especially, say, women who aren't thin enough, who are rail thin and not thin enough because there's messages that say this is what beauty is like. Or all the, the, the successful people, at least in their own happiness, uh, particularly men who say, well, I'm not as wealthy or powerful as so-and-so, because of the messages, they get in there. So it's a kind of insidious thing where you think, no, I don't go for that. But that's why Coca-Cola will buy, will spend millions for 30 seconds of your time so you can see that link, oh, happiness in a bottle, Coke. So the first principle, to see where real happiness lies. It's not in things, as you've probably heard before. And the second principle, when there is a, a gladness, that, that feeling of uplift connected with a wholesome state, to tune into it, you're deepening that connection. I didn't mention this last night, I'll mention it now. Um, one of our, a, a dear friend, Rick Hansen, who, some, who teaches here and um, who comes to the Awakening Joy course. Um, he's a neuroscience expert, if you haven't 
heard of him before. And he uh, has done a lot of research. One of his books is Buddha's Brain, another hardwiring happiness. And he says, when you are feeling that feeling of uplift and gladness, if you can take it in for 15 seconds, just really let it register. And if you can do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it, and you do that over a two-week period of time, you will notice a shift in your default setting both because you're deepening your neural pathways and you're also getting into the habit of looking for what's good around you. Now here, you've got a whole lot of time. You're not distracted at all. So you can take more than 15 seconds as long as it's here. Somebody said, oh, I felt, I feel so, I felt so peaceful today. Make peace the object of your meditation. Oh, this is what peace feels like. This is what love feels like. This is what calm feels like. Not that you're trying to grasp onto it, but just, as I said, don't miss it. And then the third principle I mentioned last night is as you practice more and more, you start to incline the mind in that direction. So with those three principles, what I then decided to do was look at the Buddhist teachings and see all the different wholesome states that we want to cultivate that can be practiced consciously and when that feeling of well-being is, um, is accessed to then apply that principle of taking in the good. So there are 10 wholesome states that I chose. There are more, but, um, and we might not get to all 10 as we, we go through the, uh, through the retreat, but we'll try to cover um, a number of them. Uh, one of them, by the way, the fourth is what I just was talking about, how opening to the difficult is a direct path to joy. But I want to, uh, backtrack and start with the first few tonight as well. And we might, uh, we'll continue on with that, that fourth as well. So the first mm, state or quality of heart that I uh, see and that the Buddha said is the key to set everything in motion is a wise intention. If you have gone through the, through the gate there <clears throat> and you've seen the, the uh, prayer wheel, which, uh, by the way, has um, hundreds and hundreds of prayers inside that wheel that people have written. And when it's in the Tibetan um, tradition, when you, when you uh, swing a prayer wheel, it's a kind of, uh, a contemporary American prayer wheel, you're spinning those prayers out to be shared with everyone. And one of those is wise intention because it's, it's one of the links of the Eightfold Path. That's what all of those um, uh, wise uh, encouragements are on that wheel. 
wise intention. And the Buddha said that intention is the intention is the start, the basis for all karma. He says, uh, intending by intending, intending is karma, I tell you, through body, speech, and mind. Or as um, a Tibetan saying uh, goes, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. The Eightfold Path starts first with wise understanding. I won't go through the whole Eightfold Path right now, but it starts with wise understanding, seeing, oh, this is where happiness lies. And then wise intention is the next step that says, oh, this, I'm going for it. And you have that intention. And with this whole process of going for well-being and going for happiness, the intention to be happy is really the key. And we, we can have intention for a, a wonderful uh, meditation or a deep spiritual practice, but having an intention for our own happiness and well-being, this is something that not everybody can, can easily make that leap. And we often say, well, no, that, that might seem a little bit self-indulgent. Me, I, I, I need to take care of everybody else first. Or it seems, um, it seems you know, Pollyannish or, or airy-fairy, put my, my ha- intention to be happy. But actually, you do want to be happy. Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? And if you're a kind of curmudgeon kind of person that is saying, well, if I had the guts, I'd raise my hand and say, yeah, I like being grumpy. That's just your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. But really, everything you do is based on the fact that you think this will make me feel a bit better or this will make me feel a little less bad. Just check it out. Don't take my word for it. This is what the Buddha said. Don't believe anybody. You just, it was an open invitation. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. So whatever I'm saying, you just check it out. But just check out and see why you do what you do. And generally, you will likely find that you're doing whatever it is because you think it will bring you a a feeling of greater ease or well-being or a quick hit of pleasure or a quick um, uh, numbing of pain. And we can be misguided, of course, and think, oh, uh, uh, this is going to make me feel good, and then afterwards saying, what was I thinking? You know, Have you ever had that experience? But it's really coming from a place that's rooting for your happiness. So if you can get in touch with that wholesome place that really does want to be happy and then see where true well-being and happiness lies, then just go for it. 
But it means being honest with yourself and saying, you know, I really do want to be happy. Not, oh, when I make enough money, then I'll be happy, or when I find the right job, or when I meet the, the perfect partner, or when I retire, you know, all of those things, then I'll be happy. Uh-uh. It's right here, right now. Don't postpone it. And that's not to say that you can just press the button or flip the switch and say, okay, now I'm happy. But rather to learn that in this moment, how I'm relating to this moment's experience is training me to not fight reality and training me to open up and not be afraid of reality and to open up and see all the goodness inside as well. So we're not forcing anything, but we're not postponing the optimal response to this present moment. <clears throat> so before we go on, I want to invite you to do a little um, experiment with me. Um, or a little exercise with me. Just close your eyes for a moment. And just imagine if you became better and better at noticing all the good inside and around you. And as you're practicing here this week or you're practicing over the course of the next few months, that more and more you learned uh, to open up to all the good. And it really supported your well-being. And what it would look like, say, in a year or two years or more. If you truly developed more connection to the well-being and the goodness right inside of you. And if this feels like a worthwhile endeavor, see if you can get in touch with the intention to bring it about and make it happen. Not the wish, but the decision to do your part to support that and let life support you. This is a heartfelt decision. This is what intention is. Not a pass-fail test, but just 
inclining the mind to allow that to happen. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. That might be one of the most important decisions in your life. Okay, I'm going to give it to myself. Intention isn't goal. You're not sitting on the sidelines saying, did I get it yet? Did I pass? You're simply inclining the mind in that direction and making the decision to do your part and let life support you. And as far as widening intention, that you see your own well-being, as I've said a few times before, in the context of your own happiness in the context of sharing your gifts with the world, in the context of others benefiting from what you are accessing. So intention is not just about personal comfort or um, pleasure. It's seeing your own Uh, goodness as a gift to everybody. And that up-levels the whole thing. So that's the first step. The intention to put well-being and happiness in the forefront. Okay, the second step is what we're cultivating here. Mindfulness, which I I call the basic tool of a joyful life. Mindfulness is the key. As the Buddha said in his uh, discourse on mindfulness, which is the basis of all Buddhist meditation, the Satipatthana Sutta, he says, um, there is one most direct way or Thich Nhat Hanh uh, translates, uh, translates it as, there is one most wonderful way. But the Buddha says there is one most direct way, at least how it's come down to us in the, in the scriptures, for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, and pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. That is the cultivation of mindfulness. Pretty good, isn't it? End pain, anxiety, grief, despair, and realize the highest happiness by mindfulness. And that is one of the amazing gifts that the Buddha discovered, that This simple practice of paying attention, of being present for your experience, 
is a tremendously purifying and liberating quality of mind and heart. And I want to explain to you a bit of how that works. First, um, mindfulness is one of what are called um, a number of mental factors. In Buddhist psychology, there is um, uh, what's called uh, 52 mental factors, different qualities of mind and heart. Some of them are positive, some of them are negative. Uh, It's just like the car, the, the deck you're dealt with, you know, all these different mental qualities. Some of them are uh, states of suffering, greed, hatred, delusion, um, envy, um, lust, jealousy, etc., etc., and others, those wholesome qualities, love, compassion, and uh, we've talked about generosity, patience. The unique property of mindfulness is that of all of these mental factors, it is the one factor that weakens the unwholesome states, the unwholesome factors, and strengthens the wholesome factors. That's pretty cool. That's where if you're feeling fear and you bring mindfulness to that fear, you're creating space where it doesn't agitate and confuse the mind. And there's a, a courage that can come from that. Just that willingness, like Jennifer Wellwood said. If you're feeling sadness or anger, mindfulness, awareness can hold it all, and it weakens the charge. And it also cultivates and strengthens the wholesome states. When you are with the moment in a friendly way, your kind, friendly heart gets developed. If you are um, not, uh, not adding on resistance, there's a kind of openness that, that, that happens. So mindfulness weakens the unwholesome states and strengthens the wholesome states. It also has the property, as I mentioned a few times, when you're in the middle of the wholesome state, if you apply mindfulness to it, it amplifies it. You'll see over the course of these next few weeks how, uh, next few weeks, next few days, (laughs) no, I won't keep you here, uh, how mindfulness works. Just, you don't have to even figure it out, but it works. I think before I go on, I just want to ask one thing, and I, I'm sorry we didn't say this before. If, if possible, unless you're feeling uh, your, your body is hurting, it would be really great if people could, could sit up for, for the talk. Uh, I'd really appreciate it, so thanks. Don't feel guilty about anything, but just want to ask that. If your, bo- your back is hurting, then, you know, then do that. I wanted to... Um, give you a, an illustration of how mindfulness works and interrupts confused thinking. This is um, an anecdote of uh, my dear friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, beloved teacher here, who um, she came to the, uh, the joy course and was sharing about mindfulness. And she shares this anecdote that I, I love to, um, to tell. Um, 
so she was uh, telling a story about how um, she became aware, how becoming aware of what she was thinking helped to um, reframe the experience. And she was in New York um, visiting uh, a friend, staying there for a little while. And uh, one evening she uh, arranged to uh, meet her friend for a theater performance and decided to take a bus to get to the, the theater. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying. I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. And figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, she says, as I'm walking, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking I should have taken a cab. Now, Sylvia's been meditating for a long time, but she's also been fretting for many years. And so it's natural that that reaction could arise. So she continues her story, and she, she describes she's running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her, <clears throat> getting to the theater. And then she says, all of a sudden, I have the thought, what am I doing Oh, I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Oh, I'm grumbling. Yes, Sylvia, dear. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. But the moment at which the mind says, Oh, Sylvia, dear, you're grumbling. The lens switches, and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels. That is far out. That is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud, and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. So you can see that's one way that mindfulness works. We have... We can be in the middle of our story and it's so intense and it's so um, frustrating or despairing or humbling or shameful or whatever. And then you step outside and say, oh, yes, dear, we're having a meltdown. That's all. You know. <laughs> and it just shifts everything because the awareness of that frustration is not frustrated. Just like the awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness of sadness is not sad. The awareness can hold it all. So in the moment that you're mindful, you are interrupting the story that your mind is creating for yourself. It's so liberating. And you probably have seen that or will see that in the next few days. You might be in the middle of an intense story and then all of a sudden you realize, oh wow, I've been in this story for the last hour or day. Oh wow, it's just this mind-created story. How freeing. And the same way that mindfulness develops the wholesome states, oh this is a moment of peace. Oh, this is a moment of love. 
This is a moment of caring and compassion. How beautiful. So the mindfulness is really the key and the tool for all of those other practices, all of the other wholesome states, the ones that we'll be sharing as as the retreat goes on, when you're in the middle of that wholesome state, you just apply mindfulness and really let it register. Not grasping. If you're grasping, you're just caught again. But if you are willing to just be present for it and let it register, and when it goes, it goes, there's where the real freedom is. So, the first step, intention. The second, mindfulness. The third, um, which I'll, maybe I'll just touch on right now, uh, but we'll go into more deeply tomorrow, is that of gratitude. A very direct connection to a wholesome state. And it's quite extraordinary, whatever you have going on in your life, something is working enough for you to come and do a retreat like this. Even if today you might have questioned whether you're, you were so fortunate, it's good, believe me. And for you to both have the circumstances and the interest and the inspiration to um, have the the chance to and the interest in practicing, that's extraordinary. So we'll go more into gratitude tomorrow, but um, I wanted to uh, just maybe end the, the talk with uh, this little um, passage of the Buddha's discourse of blessings, so you can. Um, hold your experience in this spirit of gratitude. And we'll do some more tomorrow afternoon a little bit and uh, as the retreat goes on. This is what the Buddha said is a great blessing. It's a great blessing to spend time in the company of wise people and to honor them and those who are worthy. To live in a place that's good for you to do good deeds and to keep yourself going in the right direction. To be educated, to develop your skills, to train yourself in discipline, and to use words carefully and beautifully. This this is a blessing supreme. To take good care of your relatives, to cherish your partner if you have one, and children. To engage in a livelihood that is harmless, a great blessing, to give generously to others, to live with integrity, to care for those who you you consider your family, to avoid doing harm, to refrain from clouding the mind or the body with, uh, with abuse, substance abuse, intoxicants, to develop wholesome states of mind, a great blessing, to be respectful, humble, content, grateful, and to regularly bring spiritual teachings into your life, to be patient, 
open to learning, to be in touch with people on a spiritual path, and to discuss spiritual teachings, this is a blessing supreme. To live simply, to understand the deepest truth, and to realize the highest freedom and happiness, and to have a mind that is steady, unswayed by the ups and downs of life, free of sorrow and shame, and at peace. This is a great blessing. Those who act in these ways cannot be dragged down, and everywhere they go, they find well-being. So, we are quite fortunate, and I just want to um, end the, the talk with just underscoring, no matter, and we all have our share of pain and sorrow and, and, um, um, and challenges in our life, uh, not to feel guilty, but to use this as, a, as an opportunity to develop ourselves to the greatest extent so we can make a difference in those in our lives and in the world. <clears throat> so this is what we're doing here today and these days. It takes some real patience and when things are difficult, time for self-compassion or opening up to the feelings with mindfulness, mindful awareness, which we'll, we'll go into more tomorrow. And when things are at ease and calm, to appreciate that as well. Then every moment counts. Then you're not just waiting for the next gold shivers hit or whatever it is. It's, oh, there are a finite number of moments in my life and this is one of them that will never be here again. Oh, let me be here for it. And it just turns out the more you're here for it, the more life will support you in so many beautiful ways. So, uh, let's just sit for a few moments and um, settle into the silence. So thank you very much for your attention. We have about um, a little over 20 minutes for a walking period. Just uh, enjoy the, the night air. And uh, we'll come back for one last sitting. And I really encourage you, I know you're, you probably have had a long day, but I just encourage you, it won't be a long sitting. We'll, we'll make it a bit shorter. And just as a little incentive, uh, I'm going to, share a uh
an extra little treat uh, teaching at the end. So come in uh, and stay for it. And see you at nine. <laughs>